Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy is a 10-episode fictional coming-of-age audio drama. Start with episode one and listen in sequence. If you love it, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or join our email list for exclusive content, free tracks, and episode announcements. Happy listening! Sick Picnic Media presents Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy, a novella in sound and color. Written and narrated by Matt Geiler. Episode 5 How to Be a Man in Two Weeks or Less. I was probably four or five years old when I first encountered Charles Atlas. In those last decaying days of the late 70s, when my father's flagrant hedonism saw him visit just about everywhere but our house, my mom would often take refuge from his descent into the maelstrom at her parents' place in West Des Moines, so that she could enjoy a few hours of sanity in adult conversation. Patrick and I were regularly dispatched down the stairs and into the time capsule that was our grandma's basement. Nothing in the long, narrow, subterranean realm had been touched or disturbed since my mom's brothers had grown up and moved out, the result being that the basement had been frozen into a museum-like panorama of boy-centric pop culture from around 1968 to 1973. There was a super deluxe foosball table occupying the far corner beneath a haphazardly hung pastiche of posters encompassing my Uncle Jim and Uncle Andy's teenage obsessions. Iron Butterfly, Three Dog Night, St. Louis Cardinals left fielder Lou Brock, and the perennially doomed Minnesota Vikings. Along the wall next to this display was an enormous stereo set encased in wood that had built-in speakers, a Pioneer cassette deck, and a Kenwood amplifier in addition to the usual turntable and receiver. The opposite corner housed floor-to-ceiling shelves populated by a Skillcraft chemistry lab, an erector set, a gemstone tumbler, and other assorted items disclosing technicolor clues about who these men had been as boys a pair of Everlast Junior boxing gloves, a fishing hat with tackles pinned around the brim, University of Iowa pennants, and Hawkeye bobbleheads. The backdrop for this exposition of white-bred juvenile suburban leisure was wall-to-wall -wall wood paneling, an orange-yellow plaid astroturf carpet anchored by a lemon-yellow couch with drawers in the base and a leather beanbag chair by the television. The connective tissue for all of this was an uncountable number of comic books in myriad stacks around the basement, filling every last available inch of free space. While Patrick sat on the couch drinking apple juice from a bottle and watching PBS's afternoon programming, I would thumb through these comic books, inevitably spending the most time on the ad pages in the back where Charles Atlas towered like a giant over the Wallace Brown Christmas card sales opportunity and other dubious offers involving hypnocoins and sea monkeys. Charles Atlas, smiling like a televangelist, rooted in a wide, hulking stance, wearing nothing but leopard print swim briefs. Even though the grainy photo was black and white, you could tell he was very tan and covered in the brine of the surf from the cartoon beach behind him. His perfectly slicked back hair and bulging pectorals were, I guess, intended to let you know that Charles Atlas was a trustworthy and serious man of action and that he meant what he said when he claimed he could turn you into a real He-Man in double-quick time with his proven method of dynamic tension. As if his iconic sculpted pose wasn't proof enough, it was accompanied by a comic strip featuring the transformation of a timid weakling named Mac. After being embarrassed by a muscle-bound jerk in front of his girlfriend at the beach, Mac kicks a chair across his room decides to send away for Charles Atlas's 32-page book, and days later gloats over his new muscles in front of the mirror. 
Mac then proceeds to find the beach bully and straight up assault him out of nowhere to the awe of onlookers and the delight of his girlfriend, who paws his bicep and exclaims, Oh Mac, you're a real man after all. If I'm being honest, Charles Atlas scared me a little. No matter how many hundreds of times I read that ad in my grandma's basement, I always got the same sinking feeling as I absorbed it. A far away from everything feeling that made me shrink back inside myself a bit, even though I couldn't stop looking. A loose, watery feeling that if Charles Atlas is a man, then I'd never be one. According to Charles Atlas, a man is not soft, skinny, or flabby. A man is not a 97-pound runt ashamed to show off his scrawny frame. According to Charles Atlas, a man is powerful, muscular, well-proportioned, and proud of it. A real man is someone women rave about at the beach and who makes the other fellows green with envy and who punches people out with no warning in their Tarzan underwear just like Charles Atlas. I guess the easiest way to say it is that looking at Charles Atlas made me feel ashamed for wanting to be something I already knew better than to be. I think I felt like becoming a Charles Atlas he-man would allow me to square off with other real men like my dad, who had an Atlas-like frame back then minus the dumb haircut. But then I'd be what? Another scary real man like my dad and Charles Atlas who flaunted their strength and punched whoever they felt like punching? Just thinking about that and knowing that all I had to do to get there was mail in a coupon made me uneasy and nervous. And whenever I had that thought is right when I'd close up the comic books and hop up onto the couch to watch Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers with Patrick until my mom came down for us. Once, Grandma said I could take a comic book home with me, and I showed my mom the Charles Atlas ad driving home in the car. All I have to do is send in the coupon, I said, and I get the 32-page book on dynamic tension. I see, my mom replied. And what does dynamic tension do? It gives you muscles. Freddy, you're seven. You don't need muscles. But if I had muscles like that, I could stand up for people and protect them. My mom sneaked a look over at the ad while turning a corner. By what? Punching them in the throat? Well, I wouldn't have to punch them. They'd just know not to mess with me or the people I love. My mother's voice softened into the velvet blanket tone she used to read us stories at night. Who do you want to protect, Freddy? I looked back down at Charles Atlas's smug, oiled-up grin. You? Patrick? From who? I didn't want to hurt anybody, so I looked at the floor when I answered. From Dad. There was a long silence amplified by the hum of the car on the road and my brother happily sucking down his juice. When I looked up at my mom, she was staring straight ahead, her lower lip quivering. You don't have to protect us, Freddy, she managed. It's not your job. Not your job, Freddy, Patrick giggled from the back seat. Freddy, it's not your job, Freddy, not your job. I closed up the comic book and looked out at the cornfields unfolding as we reached escape velocity and broke free of the Des Moines suburbs. Like almost every other long drive between our house and grandma's, Dan Fogelberg's leader of the band came on the radio just in time to weigh everything down with an extra layer of melancholy. My only question as I drifted off into the spacey sleep that would last the full two and a half hours until our re-entry at the farm was, if it wasn't my job, then whose job was it? It's really funny what sort of stuff stays with you even years after you stop thinking much about it. But whenever anything even remotely associated with being a man would come up, a snapshot of Charles Atlas would flash up in my brain, along with all the feelings I had around it and my father, and I would shudder and try to think about something else as quick as possible. Something fun, like painting, or playing outside. Or I'd just start singing in my high, agile voice that seemed impervious to the other swift changes of my own encroaching adolescence. 
changes that all the other guys seemed to welcome with wide-open, newly-muscled arms and the emerging outlines of mustaches. Changes that I dreaded as much as I hoped for them, and from which I was always prepared to take flight from the nearest nursery windowsill away past fog and twilight into a distant, unreachable neverland. We hadn't even been in school a week before most of my friends dove headfirst into playing Hot or Not, one of the stupidest passing period games ever devised, and almost as idiotic as the one where they'd run up behind some smaller unsuspecting kid just trying to find the right classroom and slam his head forward with whiplash speed while yelling, Headbutt! Hot or Not was even simpler to play. Between classes, a group of hormonal morons stands in a sweaty cluster in the armpit of the hallway and shouts HOT if a girl they deem sufficiently attractive walks by, and NOT if a girl whose physical qualifications are lacking comes into view. Some girls seem to appreciate the vote of confidence. Others screw their faces up into disdainful contortions. Most girls just look startled at the unexpected shouting and rowdy laughter and get away as fast as they can. The latest round of this was in full swing in front of me as I neared the door to my English class. Instead of immediately going in, I stopped and took in the breathtaking display of buffoonery. Hot, screamed Chris Dilfer, nearly falling over backwards with violent laughter as a girl none of us knew walked by. Not, boomed RJ Lefferts, when Charmaine Lundquist staggered past the group about to collapse under the weight of her backpack that was three times her size and in which she carried almost the entire contents of her locker to every class. Her head swiveled around at RJ's alarmingly loud pronouncement and her gigantic glasses flew off and skittered across the floor toward him. He rushed over and picked them up and just as he was about to put them back on Charmaine's face, he squinted and leaned in close to her like he couldn't quite make out any details, in effect mirroring her exact expression before looking back at his fellow miscreants and yelling, Definitely not! over his shoulder. The entire gang erupted with glee. Here you go, sweetheart, RJ said, finally restoring her glasses. Thank you, Charmaine fumbled as she tripped away over her own shoes her face an almost radioactive pink from embarrassment. I could feel myself shaking my head as I watched her hastily disappear down the hallway when I realized RJ had focused his foghorn-like voice on me. You probably think she's hot, right, Julius? He guffawed, drawing snickers from most of the rest of the guys, even some of my friends from baseball. She's probably just your type. You guys are jerks, I mumbled out loud momentarily forgetting who I was dealing with. What'd you say, Julius? Chris barked, taking a step toward me. Yeah, what did you say, Julia? Echoed RJ, making sure to emphasize his feminization of my last name so that everybody around could hear it, which brought more laughs. I had expected some sort of eventual retaliation from these two testosterone bags for my mom's admonishment of them on the steps the first day of school. They were within a few feet of probably pulverizing me when Chris turned abruptly and yelled, HOT! Oh my God, so hot! Followed RJ, and in an instant I was forgotten where I stood by the classroom door, made invisible by a smokescreen chorus of HOT! 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 Throated at top volume by the rest of the guys. Smoking hot! Chris continued, ramping things up. I'm your man, ladies, contributed RJ in a leering husky salvo, which immediately caused Charles Atlas to flicker forth in my mind for a second. Angie, Lisa, and Jill were hurrying by trying to beat the bell. None of them looked even remotely pleased to have to navigate this phalanx of pubescence on their way to class. As Jill and Lisa broke off and ducked by me into English, Angie turned and planted herself squarely in front of Chris and RJ and returned their musket fire by dropping a bomb. Like either of you would have a chance with your tiny little dicks. Angie had shouted this so loudly and forcefully that all activity in the waning seconds of the passing period froze, 
providing a startling silence into which the final bell poured its wrangling clangor. The unfamiliar sound of a young female voice drawing such a distinct and profane line in the sand also brought teachers' heads peeking out of doorways and motivated our principal, a disheveled man named Corbin Peters, whose ties looked like they'd been salvaged from the 70s, to shoot out of his office and shamble down the hall to see what new disaster was unfolding. Mr. Peters was about to lay into Angie, but she wasn't finished yet. She stepped in even closer to the now libidoless flock of boys and pointed her finger first at RJ's face, then at Chris's. Not and not, she roared with flared nostrils. Before Mr. Peters could say or do anything, Angie was gone, headed upstairs to whatever class she was late for. He looked completely dumbfounded, but had recovered enough by the time he turned toward R.J., Chris, and the rest of them that he wagged his head back and forth in stern admonishment, almost like he was agreeing with Angie. Any of you jokers cause any of the young ladies in this school any more problems and you'll have detention for a week, he declared. Most likely, Mr. Peters didn't have the backbone to follow through on such a threat, but it made me smile to see every alpha in our school cower with bowed heads before the bungling administrator. When I turned around to go in and find my seat, I discovered Lisa and Jill still lingering in the doorway, smiling, gently biting their lips to keep from laughing. Find your seats, please, called Mrs. McCrowley from her desk at the front of the classroom, her voice resonant and curt. We're going, God, Lisa mouthed off, and to which Mrs. McCrowley said nothing. While she said this, Lisa was looking at me with a who-does-she-think-she-is expression that dissolved into a self-satisfied smile by the time she settled in her chair. As English began, it was clear to me now more than ever that the girls from Eagle had unfathomable powers and would probably laugh Charles Atlas right out of Waverly if he ever showed up. We'll have ten minutes of reading time, and then I want you to pass your papers forward, Mrs. McCrowley instructed, already so exasperated and exhausted that she didn't even look up from her desk when she said it. On the third day of school, Mrs. McCrowley had assigned us what she called a free write. She told us that each week we would write whatever we wanted about a topic she would give us, and would turn it in the following week. The first topic was for us to write about something that scared us. Maybe her thinking was that all of us must be anxious about junior high anyway, and so she assumed we could relate. I didn't know what anybody else was scared about, but adjusting to a new school was pretty far down on my list. The book I brought for personal reading time was A Field Guide to the Little People, a fantasy handbook filled with descriptions of and folk tales about all manner of wood nymphs, fairies, hobgoblins, and sprites, with detailed illustrations that I thought were gorgeous, but that would definitely get me in trouble if Mrs. McCrowley ever saw them. On one page, there was a picture of a giant, a voluptuous river fairy who carried her young by her breasts, which were long enough that she could throw one over each shoulder. In the picture, she was wading downstream in a river, on the banks of which were depicted several nixies seducing a peasant farmer in various stages of undress. Normally, I would be transfixed by this material, but instead I decided to use my reading time to give my free write on being scared one last look before I turned it in. I had an uneasy twisting in my stomach about it, because even though everything I had written was totally honest, I also felt like maybe I shouldn't be sharing some of it, and that maybe Mrs. McCrowley would become alarmed when she read it and want to talk to me about it, which would be embarrassing, but maybe also helpful and good. And that scared me, too. Freddie Julius, Honors English 7, Mrs. McCrowley, September 10, 1987. How to be a man according to a variety of sources. Since we're supposed to write about something that scares us, I'm choosing to write about turning from a boy into a man. I'm not scared of this in the way that you get scared from a horror film or from someone jumping out at you from behind a bush in the dark, or even in the same way as nuclear strikes or someone dying. A lot of times I don't even know what it's supposed to look like, and it can get very confusing because so many people say so many different things. I think that's what's scary about it to me. 
Here are some things I have heard that make me a little afraid of it. Don't Worry Baby, a song by the Beach Boys. There's a line in this song where the lyrics go, I guess I should have kept my mouth shut when I started to brag about my car, but I can't back down now because I'd pushed the other guys too far. Does this mean a man doesn't back down even when he knows he's wrong or in trouble? Is there really no other options except worrying you made a mistake but not saying anything and not backing down from the drag race even though you're afraid? And why is drag racing cars a thing that a real man does anyway? Movies and TV in general. I've noticed that if you're a man in movies or on TV, you take charge of situations and are very decisive. You save things. You save women. You don't listen very well to others, but you trust your gut. You have no problem shooting things up and blowing up stuff if it gets the job done. A man knows how to kiss women and sleep with them, but aren't really good at talking with them. I might be watching the wrong kinds of movies, but I don't really want to be the kind of man I see in entertainment. Brian Draper, personal friend. Brian and Trent Tucker and a bunch of my other friends think French kissing girls makes you a man. They don't say it like that, but that is the message they send by putting so much importance on getting a girl to French with you. But it feels wrong for that to be the main thing for why you would want to hang out with a girl. It feels like you're trying to get something from her instead of being interested in who she is without all of the Frenching. And they're always asking you if you've Frenched yet, so even if you haven't, you feel like you have to lie or else you're not cool. The funny thing is that even if I actually had Frenched, I'll bet they wouldn't believe me if I told them. So maybe it only makes you a man sometimes, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. My dad. My dad is the main example of a man that I have to look to for how to be one. But this one is probably the most confusing of all because I'm a lot like him in some ways, but in other ways we're totally different. My dad is an excellent drawer because he's an architect, but he also has really good singing voice and he's funny too. So I think those things could be part of what a man is or does because I like to do all of them just as a part of who I am. I hope the next thing is okay for me to say, but my dad gets really rough with my mom and it can get really scary. Sometimes it's just for something my mom said and he will explode. I don't think that's the way to be, but I worry that since I'm like my dad, I will end up doing those things too. I really don't want to turn into that type of man if it's possible, but that is a scary thought to me. Note to Mrs. McCrowley. I hope it's okay that I wrote about this as something that scares me. If it's possible, please don't put this in my sample folder because I just wanted to be honest but I don't want my mom or dad to read it at conferences. I was just trying to get a few things off my chest. Thank you for reading this. Mrs. McCrawley's timer went off right as I finished looking my writing over, and just like that, it was swept up in the wave of papers surging forward to the front of the class. She collected them all in a few harried strides across the room and let them fall in a loose, leafy pile all over her desk. In just the few days we'd had English with her, I noticed Mrs. McCrowley's desk always looked like a tornado had gone right through it. Paper, books, and pens strewn everywhere as though they'd blown in from Kansas. The very first day I saw her put her head in her hands and blow out a loud sigh when she discovered the pen she was looking for was actually floating in her coffee. She had a potted plant on the corner that seemed to be growing back over the desk, instead of reaching for the light from the window not three feet away. In fact, Mrs. McCrowley herself reminded me of a tornado in the way she tilted through the classroom at breakneck speed like she was out of time, her gigantic bouffant of coarse blonde hair wisping out and clinging to her sweaty brow and cheeks, her desperate breathing and frazzled exhales sounding like the wind from a great gathering storm. Exhibiting these exact characteristics, Mrs. McCrowley blew through one of the aisles and was almost out the door as she said, Grab your things, we're going to the library. And we all followed in her wake out into the hall and up the stairs to the third floor. In the library, we were told the rest of the class was open study, which basically meant everybody just whispered back and forth while McCrowley sat on a chair next to the fan and the periodicals rack reading and grading the papers we'd just turned in. She could probably hear everything, but I got this feeling she was just too tired to care because she never looked up once. 
I figured it was as good a time as any to do some doodling in my sketchbook, which I carried with me everywhere. I was sharpening my pencil when Brian appeared from around the end of the bookshelf. He looked excited and confused, like he was about to deliver some news that was too big to keep under wraps. But I knew that whatever he had to say was borderline classified, because he positioned himself between me and the rest of the class and leaned in close so that nobody else could hear. Jill wants to know if you'll go with her, he whispered. I stopped sharpening, instantly aware that this revelation had caused my hands to tighten and clenched the pencil sharpener with the grip of a desperate pilot willing a wildly spinning fighter back into control. These weren't words you heard every day. Well, Brian pressed. My Ocean Pacific t-shirt was a thin membrane, barely constraining a thudding in my chest that I was certain the other kids in the library could hear. Jillian Golightly, the vortex of the Eagle Girl's incredible electrical storm. I wasn't sure what it meant to go with someone, or how Jill had decided I was somebody she wanted to go with. But Brian's disclosure that she had sent a warm rush of blood around the back of my head and made my ears hot and crackle as though they'd just received and understood some seductive secret of the occult. Where does she want me to go? I asked, maybe a little too loudly. No, man, Brian hushed me, smiling. She doesn't want to take you anywhere. She wants to know if you'll be her boyfriend. I can count on one hand the times in my life where I genuinely felt plucked from obscurity and, through the independent grace and smiling benevolence of a power beyond me, set down in a new and unfamiliar world of mystery and discovery. The first occurred right then at that pencil sharpener. Yes, I murmured, the tension falling out of my hands with an almost drunken carelessness. I'll go with her. Awesome, said Brian, clapping me on the shoulder. I'll give her the word. And with that, he disappeared back around the bookshelf like a teenage ghost. As my arms slowly reanimated and the gravelly churn of the sharpener's blades faded back into my awakening ears, I looked out over the library desks at the rest of my class. Nothing had changed. They hadn't even noticed. Still in their books, deep and silent, or continuing to whisper breathless conversations, all of them were oblivious. While just ten feet away, everything had changed. I wanted to quickly glance over and see if Jill might be looking at me, but I just kept sharpening my pencil and grinning, and before I knew it, a melodic bass line had dropped in, and crystalline harmonies were peeling out from between the books and cascading down the shelf wrapping my neck in a mellifluous scarf of sound. It was awesome. Not ten minutes later, during the next passing period, Lisa Savage leaned up against the locker next to mine. Of all the Eagle Girls, Lisa's eyes were the wildest. Not just a common green, they were more like someone had emptied a tube of Viridian watercolor paint into a swimming pool and encased the whole mixture in malachite. Her lashes were long and huge, and her eyebrows curved down into them at a perilous angle, giving the impression that she had a daring spirit, a reckless disregard for rules, and that she might be plotting some mischievous adventure that would be utterly and undeniably fun. She also couldn't stand still for more than a few seconds at a time. Even standing in the hallway, she seemed like she was vibrating, moving in rhythm to some frequency you didn't have the bandwidth to tune into. Lisa's whole body was the language and motion of right now. Angie really told those guys off before class, huh? Yeah, she did, I concurred. I hope she doesn't get in trouble for it. Oh, she won't, Lisa assured me. She says stuff like that all the time in front of teachers and they never do anything. I don't know why. That's amazing, I offered incredulously. All of those guys, they're your friends, right? I don't think Chris and RJ would consider me a friend. Well, yeah, not after your mom totally ripped into them the other morning. But the rest of them you're friends with, right? Pretty much, I said glumly, feeling guilty by association. 
But you weren't joining in with them. Why not? I don't know. I just think that game is stupid. It makes people feel bad about themselves. Don't even get me started on the whole headbutting thing. I know, that's the worst. Remember when they got Quinn Juracek last week? They slammed his head so hard he fell down and all his stuff went all over the floor. I did remember. I'd been maybe a foot or two away when it happened. It made Quinn late for class because he had to pick everything back up by himself, and then his neck was hurting so bad he couldn't even finish out the day, and his mom had to come get him from the nurse's office. That made me so mad, I seethed. Quinn's never done anything to them. He's so smart and nice to them and helps them with their homework, and all they ever do is tease him and embarrass him. But you stopped and helped him pick everything up, Lisa continued. Jill and I watched you. Well, he needed help, and nobody was helping him. You're sweet, she said, and then looked furtively around, sensing time was running short as she formulated her next thought. Just for the record, I think it's total bullshit that Chris and RJ and Trent and the rest of those guys act like that. And of course they're always picking on people smaller than them who can't fight back. Yeah, I agreed. It's terrible. The hallway was beginning to clear, and I hadn't even opened my locker yet. So, Lisa rushed on, I have a question. Her lips were drawn up in a smile, and actually looked drawn. They reminded me of how Charles Dana Gibson might have rendered them in ink if she was a shop girl working in Chicago or New York City in the 1890s. Sharp and soft, and slightly parted, as if she was about to make a pronouncement about your flaws, your fealty, or your fate. Sure, I mumbled. Are you going to the football game on Friday night? Yeah, it's my brother's birthday and he's bringing a bunch of his friends and... Okay, great, she chuckled, cutting me off and leaning closer. She wasn't chewing her gum, but I knew it was hiding somewhere in her cheek because I could smell the watermelon. Jill wants to know if you'll meet her at halftime, she breathed. Behind the shed, at the end of the track. What she said next actually gave me goosebumps. Do you think you can do that? All the instruments dropped out, and one low, pulsing bass note, a mellotron fed through a vintage cabinet, repeated itself as Lisa waited for my answer. Is this what it feels like when the government approaches you to do spy work? Her question wasn't just an invitation from Jill. Lisa was opening a hidden door into their lives, that even as much as my agile mind had considered them over the past two weeks, remained clouded and spared no clues. I didn't want to let any of these girls down. Yeah, I can do that, I said, looking her right in her eyes and feeling a bit bewitched. Perfect, she glowed. I'll tell Jill you'll be there. Lisa backed away from my locker but didn't turn around into actually walking off for about five steps or so making me think that my agreement to this rendezvous had made her happy independently of whatever it meant for Jill. The darting last-second noise of the hallway rushed back in from both left and right, and my cheeks began tingling as she rounded the corner and hurried up the stairs. It was the sensation of a tight two-part harmonic lead vocal, one pleasurable note on top of another. I was now navigating uncharted waters, my mind and my skin racing, both pulsing with anticipation of what might happen during the meeting with Jill. I had never gone with anybody before. Maybe there was an official meeting that had to happen when you started going with someone. Maybe it was like a job interview. I didn't know exactly what happened in a job interview, but both my parents had had them, and they seemed to make both of them really nervous. Maybe it was like that. I would find out in two days, and in two seconds I'd be late for my next class, which I just remembered was art. In order to get this Coke can just right, we should probably use an airbrush. Back away from the other students in the hallowed sanctuary of the art room's additional space, Mr. Lauderdale was holding my last two attempts from the summer watercolor madness. Instead of the thumbnails he asked for, I brought in two versions of the rose, hoping they'd give him an idea of what I was trying to do. 
Now Mr. Lauderdale held one in each hand, looking from one to the other, slightly smiling, clearly energized at figuring out the logistics of realizing the vision I'd been chasing for weeks in my room, but never quite nailed down. You painted these with just drugstore paints? he asked. I nodded. I didn't want to say we couldn't really afford the good kind. Impressive, he continued, examining the paintings. You've definitely gone as far as you're going to get with that stuff. Lauderdale laid them down on his desk and opened the storage locker behind it. After a couple of minutes of rummaging and a couple more barely audible expletives, he straightened back up with an enormous sheet of paper and an old metal lunchbox, the kind I'd seen construction workers carry around on my dad's job sites. He brushed past me, and I followed him over to the drafting table he'd set up for me next to a pile of drop cloths and the abandoned pottery wheel. Now, I know how frustrating those paints you've been using can be, Lauderdale began. But just as important is the paper. Here, run your hands over that. The sheet he handed me was almost the size of a movie poster. I held it for a second and slowly moved my fingers across the surface. It was much thicker than any paper I'd ever drawn or painted on and had minute little indentations all over it, giving it an unusual quality of being rough and smooth at the same time. It felt good to touch it, and when I flattened my palm against it, I got a pleasant, feathery buzz at the top of my neck and could hear faintly tingling chimes. This feels a lot different than the paper I've been using. That's paper made especially for watercolor painting. It's called cold-pressed, and this particular kind is handmade, which is why it looks slightly torn at the edges. They call that a decal edge. This paper is extremely strong and extremely absorbent, so it can handle a lot of water and a lot of paint without buckling or wrinkling. As Lauderdale extolled the virtues of cold-pressed, handmade watercolor paper, a sense of deep relief washed over me like I was being swallowed by a black hole of endless white noise. I felt my shoulders untighten and drop as my lungs let my breath out calm and easy. Until that moment, I hadn't been aware I'd been holding it inside me for so long. Although we were standing in the drab, lifeless art room in the drab, lifeless junior high building in drab, lifeless old Waverly, Nebraska, I felt like I'd flown away. The old context had ceased to exist, and I was a burning young talent rising through the art world of New York or Paris, handpicked by the illustrious watercolor genius Lauderdale as heir apparent to his legacy of bravery and brilliance with the brush. Did you hear what I said about being careful when applying the paint? Lauderdale's voice untethered me from my reverie, and I was back in the white dust once again. Um, sorry, I was just, uh, thinking about the painting. I looked down and saw that he had spread out several large tubes of Windsor & Newton watercolor paint on the side table next to the drafting board. My pulse quickened, and I could feel my increased heartbeat thudding through my shirt. I was saying that you have to be careful when you're... Are those Windsor and Newtons? I interrupted. I've seen these at the art supply store, and we can never get them because they're so expensive. Yeah, Lauderdale chuckled. They're on the expensive side. I picked up a tube of cadmium red and held it with a care and reverence usually reserved for ancient artifacts and babies. These are like $30 a tube, I marveled. This is like 250 bucks worth of paint. Only after I'd spoken those words out loud did I notice that the tubes were all full and unopened. As it dawned on me that maybe Lauderdale had purchased the paint and the paper just for my project, I looked up at him abruptly, instantly feeling my cheeks flush red and hot like the paint I was holding. I can't, I stammered. I mean, I probably shouldn't. For just a moment, Lauderdale's signature scowl had vanished completely, leaving only a soft, kind smile beneath his dark, sad, hopeful eyes. I'll use some of it too, he nodded gently. There's plenty for both of us to do some painting. As a large, grateful lump formed in my throat, Lauderdale plunged back into preparing and explaining, 
fixing the paper to the drafting table with masking tape as he went. So, you want to be careful when applying the paint because this paper is very absorbent. Like I said, it can take a lot, but that means you don't have a ton of time to mess around pushing the paint through the water. You've got to know a little bit what you're going to do beforehand. What if I make a mistake? I wondered out loud. Louderdale stopped taping and left the roll hanging on the table. He bent down to me and put one hand on each of my shoulders. You won't. You're just going to paint how you paint, and if something unexpected happens or you get stuck, I'll be here to help you. I nodded hesitantly, thankful for his support, but not entirely sure I believed him. Look, he continued, glancing over his shoulder to check on the 20 other students he was neglecting, and then right back at me. You're an artist. You need good materials to do good work. And judging by your samples, you already know what you want to do with this rose in the pop can. Now you're just going to do it for real. He quickly finished taping the paper and moved a tin can of brushes from his desk over to mine. I'm going to go check on the rest of the class. You know what a flat wash is? I nodded emphatically with wide eyes, remembering it from my stolen book of watercolor techniques. Why don't you do your light underdrawing in pencil and then put just the tiniest bit of that red you're holding on a brush and wash the whole paper with it? It won't seem like much, but it'll give everything you put on top of it a slight pink warmth that will look nice, especially when we airbrush that Coke can. I'd keep your same composition from the other two. It's fantastic. I had started and finished this same painting at least a hundred times over the sweltering stretches of summer, but the feeling I had as I began sketching out this version was new. I felt even and clean, not just open and calm, but for the first time in a while sure of my hand and confident that the pictures in my head would emerge whole and pure on paper. I felt swollen with refreshed spirit. I guess you could say I felt safe. After finishing the initial wash, I blocked in the colors of the remaining elements for the rest of class, the windowsill and pane, the hand crank, the wallpaper around the window, and the initial red of the rose itself. I was so immersed I didn't even hear the bell signaling the end of the day and asked Mr. Lauderdale if I could stay after and keep painting while he cleaned up. I actually got so into building up the colors, allowing the water and pigments to pool and bind, configuring subtle variations across the expanse of paper, that I forgot to let my mom know where I was. Her worry turned to relief when she walked into the art room with Patrick almost 45 minutes after school let out and found me hunched over my painting, still working. Following a smattering of small talk with Mr. Lauderdale, she gathered Patrick and I into the van, and we began the late afternoon drive back out into the country to have dinner at the farm. The country at night is soundless, but alive with sound, if that makes any sense. There is no immediately detectable ambient noise, the receding gradients of acoustic activity that account for the feel of a city are absent. If you haven't grown up in the country, it's a vacuum. But inside the total silence, or underneath the surface of it, is a looping tape of aural artifacts. Crickets. Prairie wind whispering through long grasses. The wail of a gray wolf buried in reverb. Like a radio signal that gains clarity with tuning, this hidden channel comes in as the sun sinks beneath the frayed fringe of unbroken cornfields, swallowing orange and pink and coughing up a brief blanket of violet before the stars begin to appear. Most people won't sit and listen to no sound until the sounds that make it up become audible. Maybe that's where the whole it's too quiet thing comes from. It takes patience to tolerate a break in the soundtrack. I woke up later that night to a sound that wasn't a regular part of that tapestry. It was my mother's voice, but without words, a painful glissando between a groan and crying. 
I leaned over the side of the top bunk where I slept and looked down to see if Patrick was awake. I couldn't tell. He was turned over on his side facing the wall and curled up motionless under the blankets. I wondered if he was also hearing the few words emerging from her nocturnal keen. No. Please. Stop. Those pleading words flickered in and out of her sorrowful lament like figures achieving form out of a fog. My mom's voice was faint but persistent, as though an enormous weight was pressing her down, down through the mattress, through the floorboards, down through the foundation of the house, through the grass, through the dirt, and into the earth into a subterranean darkness. My dad isn't a small man. Please. No. While my mom descended again into a wordless morning, I laid motionless on my back, my eyes straining to assemble meaningful pictures from the wood grain in the ceiling above. Faces with craggy mouths and jagged eyes seemed to move in and out of the natural abstract of the pine in gruesome rhythm to the shaking of my parents' bed. My mother's sobbing and the pounding of the frame against the wall created a terrifying syncopation. Splintery figures continued to leer at me and retreat into shadow until finally the crying and the grate of the bed fused with each other into the featureless humming of broadcast static. When it occurred to me to look over the side of my bed again, the house was completely silent. Patrick had turned over onto his other side, and his face was bathed in moonlight, skipping into our room from the tree branches outside our window. His eyes were open.
This episode of Lonely Boy is brought to you by Sick Picnic Media. To us, you're not just a listener. You're part of this journey now, too. For exclusive updates, sneak peeks, and maybe even a free track or two, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or sign up for our email list. Don't forget, we release new episodes on all your favorite podcast platforms every Friday. Until next time, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, it's always a good time to imagine anything. Peace and much love. Please note, Lonely Boy is a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, locales, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, or actual events is purely coincidental. Copyright 2023, Sick Picnic Media. All rights reserved, including the right to reproduce, distribute, or transmit in any form or by any means. For information regarding subsidiary rights, please contact Sick Picnic Media. Sick Picnic Media.